If you have found your place in the book of Acts, beginning in 21, we are going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 41. So follow with me, please, as I read. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things... He dismissed the assembly. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, as we come before you again with open Bibles in our laps, we thank you for your word. We ask now that as we begin to walk through this passage that your spirit would be our teacher, that even now you would begin to soften our hearts to receive the truth that we're going to read, or that you would begin even now to bend our will to line up with your word and what's required of us. Lord, we ask 
that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do and say for these next few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. So as a bit of background as we continue on and finish up chapter 19, our text today falls chronologically right after what happened last week. So if you remember last week, that was a crazy story too. Um, Seems to be a theme with me. But we learn about the sons of Sceva. We remember the craziness that went on with that and how they fled the house. And the end of the passage, we read about those who were believers coming and burning their books and scrolls, these, these magic books that gave spells and incantations and different things that, that were tied likely to some of what we're going to read about today with the, the goddess Artemis. But because of new hearts and changed affections, these people came and willingly burned very valuable items because they recognized that it was not compatible with the life of following Christ. And so that is probably the last thing in probably a long line of things that have happened that Luke records and notices, but Luke's not the only one who records it and notices, as we're going to see today. Some of these changes are great. Some of these changes are what we may refer to as culture changing because it's affecting bigger things than just one or two individuals. It's affecting things bigger than a stack of books in somebody's library. And we're going to see who some of the folks who are noticing these changes are. But before we get there, Luke kindly gives us a hint at what is to come in Paul's journey. First couple of verses of our passage today, beginning in 21. Luke, before our main event, tells us, now after these things, so these are the things that we read about last week, the Sons of Sceva and the the book burnings. After these things, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So there's this this parenthetical statement that that Luke drops in here and says, Okay, as you're going to finish studying this book of Acts, Here's where we're going. Actually, here's where Paul's going, but you're going to go along with him. And as you read through the book, and when you finish up at the end, you will see that this that Luke laid out is exactly the path that Paul takes as he continues his ministry. So from Ephesus, Paul plans to head to Macedonia, and you think, well, I don't know what that is. If you are familiar with your New Testament, Thessalonica, Berea, those are some cities that you may have heard of or be familiar with. Those are in Macedonia, so those are some of the churches that he would be likely stopping by. And then Achaia is Greece or Corinth. So those two are, are places that uh, you may be, may be more familiar with. Then he heads to Jerusalem. You're familiar with that. And then to Rome. We're, we're familiar with that too. Now, if your Bible is like my Bible, you may, at the bottom of your page, have a map that shows all these places. And if it's like my Bible, how it's set up, Ephesus is in kind of the middle of the map. And then he says he's going to Macedonia and Achaia, which is west of where he's going to be. Then he's going to Jerusalem, which is east of where he's going to be. And then he's going to Rome that on my map doesn't even show up. It's so far to the west. So you think, Paul, do you not go in a straight line anywhere you go? Um, So if you look at that and you look at the map and you think, 
Why the roundabout way to get to Rome, Paul? I'm glad you asked. I want to read a couple of passages to help us. And these do not necessarily help with our text today. But when we read these two passages, I want to, I want to point out a couple of things that helps us big picture wise in, in studying the scripture. So the first one, if you have, if you'd like to turn, we're going to be Romans 15. I just want to read a couple of verses. Romans 15, 25 to 28. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. Verse 25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. Do those sound familiar? We just read them. Have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come in to share their spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. So the two places that Paul or that Luke records in Acts as Paul going first, which is to the west of Ephesus, Macedonia and Achaia, Paul references right here. And what's he doing? He's going to pick up an offering. Then he's going to the next place Luke tells, to Jerusalem, to provide that offering to poor believers there, the Gentiles helping their Jewish brothers and sisters. Then, he talks about going to these places. He sends two people ahead. Sends two of his helpers ahead. If you have your Bibles and feel froggy, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Beginning in verse 5. Paul likely wrote this while he was in Ephesus. So Luke is recording Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul is ministering in Ephesus and writes letters as he does. We've got several of them that, that constitute majority of our New Testament. So Paul is likely has written the first letter to the Corinthians. It's found in the New Testament in Ephesus while he was there. So beginning in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. That's exactly what Luke said. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And that last phrase, and there are many adversaries. That is an understatement that we're getting ready to take a look at. And I read these things again, not because this necessarily helps us understand the passage that we're going to read, but I want us to train our mind that this book fits together. Luke is recording Paul's journey. Paul is writing to the churches he's going to visit. I want us to see how all of this is, is continuous, and not just the New Testament, and not just Luke's ministry and recording of Paul's ministry, but all of Scripture. As we read this, it all ties together. We can't parachute in, pick up something, and then take back off. We've got to understand. We've got to see how it all crosses. We've got to see what the Lord's teaching us. All of this book is pointing us to Christ. All of this book is pointing us to Christ. From the very beginnings of Genesis, when we hear of the seed of the woman, all the way to the Revelation, when it all comes to a halt, so to speak. All of it's about Christ. Either looking forward to the one who is to come, the gospels are him here, living that life, making that sacrifice, raising from the dead. The rest of the New Testament is looking back to that, 
working to build the church and looking forward to him coming again. So I say all that just so we understand this stuff fits and works and it's not by accident that that happens. So the great number of adversaries, that's what we're getting ready to read about. Look in verse 23. Here's the understatedness of Luke. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbances. You know, it's kind of a dust up. Um, the way, that's referenced as you could just call, say, Christianity. No little disturbance concerning Christianity. We talked last week about the book burning. No doubt there have been other things that have happened. And people are noticing. Luke noticed we're going to see a guild of tradesmen who noticed. And again, pointing back to last week, I want us to understand order of events. Who burned the books last week? Believers burned the books last week. That has to happen first, okay? We've got to understand Paul is preaching, people are getting saved then that new heart, then those new affections, then that new behavior, that is the correct order. So if you're here today and you think, look, I am really getting to where I like to hear about this gospel stuff, and I've just got a couple things to fix in my life, and then I think I can go down front and talk to the pastor and shake his hand and get baptized. That's wrong. It's a wrong way. It's a, that's a misunderstanding. As the old country preacher used to say, you can't clean a fish before you catch it, Right? So this is exactly, I want us to understand that. And as we move forward and understand what is happening in Ephesus, we've got to understand it's because of a new heart, because of a new set of affections, because of new desires, because of a new love of God. That is the correct order. That is what transforms things. That is what transforms this culture that we're getting ready to see. That change is what is no little disturbance. So the main event, verse 24, this begins Luke's account of that disturbance. We meet a man named Demetrius, silversmith. He's the one who kicks things off for us. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So Luke explains very little, just gives us kind of a cursory introduction to this man, who he is, what he does, and what his problem is with this little disturbance, no little disturbance. So if you think about it, we, we talked a little bit last week about um, the temple of Artemis. Your version may say Diana, depending on Roman or Greek background, that's this, basically the same um, idol that is referenced and so last week we talked about the Temple of Diana and how it's one of the seven wonders of the world. Well, a few more um, pieces of information, just background so we can see that. You may be familiar with the Parthenon. It exists to this day in ruin, but, but fairly complete in Athens. Very similar structure, large pillars holding up the roof. It was um, an ancient temple, very much contemporary to, to Artemis. It is amazing to see the sculpture, the, the artwork that is associated with it, just the construction and architecture that's tied to it. 
is is amazing to to architects and and history students alike. Well, the temple of Artemis, the floor area of this temple was four times bigger than that. It was four times the size of the great Parthenon in Athens. It was almost twice the height of the Parthenon. Now, it was destroyed during a war, and all the pieces and parts are carried off, so we don't have it to, to see today. But it had 127 white marble columns that held up the roof, and it was glorious. It was a focal point in the city for not only religious activity, but political activity, economic activity, as we're seeing now. So it was the pride of the Ephesians, and the town clerk points that out later as we carry on in the study. But look at what Demetrius does. So we meet him in verse 24, then in verse 25. He's, this is talking, referring back to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. So think of it this way. Demetrius is a silversmith. It says he makes silver shrines to Artemis. Then there may have been wood carvers. There may have been goldsmiths. There may have been those who did pottery or sculpture or whatever. All of these craftsmen who build these things, right? And these things you could buy to take with you to have a piece of the goddess in your home. And the more you opened your wallet, the fancier it got. If you didn't have much, maybe it was a piece of pottery. You had a lot, you could buy silver. And so what you could spend dictated how much did you really love this goddess and want to worship. So Demetrius is one of many craftsmen who are making these things and selling these things as part of the worship at the temple. So that's who we see. That's who we, we find. Workmen in similar trades. And then what does he say? The end of verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Now we're going to point this out a couple of times as we, we read through this passage and see different words that Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses. But he doesn't say here, look, if this goes bad, I'm not going to be able to feed my family. He's not scraping by, right? Luke doesn't choose words haphazardly. What does he say? We have our wealth. Look, man, I got my country club membership to pay for, and this guy Paul is cutting into that. Verse 26, and you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. He, he agrees with Luke, at least, where Luke tells us that almost all of Asia has heard the gospel. Demetrius agrees. Almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be deposed from her, from her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worship. So back in verse 25, he cites his wealth. Now this is likely the actual reason Demetrius is all riled up, right? The bottom line is being affected, and Demetrius knows it. He points it out <coughs> to fellow craftsmen in an effort to get them on board. So verse 25, he says that. Jump down to verse 27, and he cites their trade and their craft losing their reputation. Look, I don't want it to sound like it's all about money. So we've got some uh, a reputation. We are skilled 
We are well known for what we do. And if people aren't buying our stuff, we're not going to be so skilled and well known any longer. He also points out in verse 27 that even our goddess may lose her magnificence. Everybody worships this goddess, and if we lose our stuff, people don't believe it anymore, then that's going to be awful. What's going to happen? She may be deposed from her magnificence, she who Asia and all of the world worshiped. Why is this happening? Why are our orders dwindling? Why is my shop not as full as it used to be? Why do I have stuff sitting on my shelves and it's almost Christmas time, right? Why is all this happening? Well, look back at verse 26. <clears throat> you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands or not God's. Now, I will say this. Demetrius has said nothing wrong. We may argue with him and say, the Holy Spirit's doing the work. But it's through Paul's message and Paul's ministry. Paul's teaching is how the Holy Spirit is choosing to do that. So we may, we may quibble with him a little bit there, but I don't know if Demetrius is the prophet or the son of a prophet, but everything he's worried about right here comes to pass. Other than passages like this in history books, when's the last time you heard of Artemis? She's no longer magnificent. Her temple is in ruins and scattered around the world to build other things. So Demetrius gets it right on. But I want you to see what Luke chooses here. Again, Luke's words are chosen carefully. Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. So Luke uses similar words to this. If you look back in the chapters that get us to where we are now in Acts, you look at the cities where Paul works and ministers and teaches, Luke uses words like this. Persuades is a word that Luke has used himself to describe Paul's ministry. He also talks about arguing. He also talks about reasoning. Chapter 17, we have Paul with the Areopagus, the most learned people. Paul stands up and gives an account of the gospel and says, you don't have to wonder who's this unknown God. I know who it is, and I'll tell you all about him. In Corinth, chapter 19, in Ephesus, Luke, Luke describes Paul's messages as, as being reasonable. They're well thought out. They are engaging. And it is clear Paul believes what he's teaching, for one. He believes the gospel. He believes it's the truth. He believes it is the power to make the changes of the thing, like the things we're reading in this passage. And Paul's not scared to point that out, no matter the learnedness of his hearer or not. What does Paul do? He shows up, usually in a synagogue, right? That's a good starting point. Often doesn't end well for him there. He gets beat up, stoned, run out of town, dust himself off, does it again. Paul continues to do that. He is continuing to engage. Now, we would say that salvation is the Lord's business. But the message we are called to send and tell to our neighbors and to the nations has got to be engaging. It's got to be clear. 
It's got to be accurate. So Demetrius is on the money. Paul is persuading these people. Paul is explaining it in a well-reasoned way and in a way that they can understand either in the synagogue or Tyrannus' lecture hall or wherever. And things are happening. Things are changing. People are being converted and the culture is noticing. But remember this as you talk with your neighbor, as you share the gospel with your neighbor and you think, I don't know what to say. I don't know what, what if they ask me a question? So what? The Bible can stand up to their questions. No problem. Now, you may not know the answer off the top of your head, but a certain reasonable person would always allow you the opportunity to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. But just remember that the the Bible can stand up to this. The Bible can stand up to scrutiny. The Bible can stand up to ridicule. All we are called to do is to be faithful. Paul understood that, worked and worked to teach these deep truths to those who would hear. So Demetrius apparently is a very skilled silversmith. He's very wealthy. He's also a grade A pot stirrer and rabble rouser, as we're getting ready to see beginning down in verse 28. We'll pick up there. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Demetrius grabs the tradesmen together, gets them all fired up, and it expands like wildfire. Look in verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So the crowd reacts to Demetrius. It grows quickly. The whole city, it seems like, is getting in on the action. And then they start these chants to Artemis. They rush down the street. They rush into the theater. And on the way, they grab two Christians who happen to be traveling companions of Paul's. Now, the temple of Artemis was fantastic, magnificent. It was really impressive. The theater is no slouch. As I read and studied this week, it said that this theater likely could fit, and it's almost perfectly preserved. You can, if you go to Turkey today, you can still go to Ephesus and see this. It fits 25,000 people. And you think, I don't know what that means. Well, it's just a big number. Well, if you're familiar with PNC Arena where North Carolina State plays their men's basketball games, Carolina Hurricanes play hockey, if you've ever been to a game or an event in there, that place holds about a little over 18,000 people. So almost half again that fit in PNC Arena in Raleigh, almost half again fit in this place. It's a big place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that it's full, but it's crazy. It's got a lot going on. And Poor old Paul's buddies who just walking along minding their own business get picked up and carried along to go into the, uh, into the theater. And somehow word of this reached Paul. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Paul, let's think about this a second. Demetrius has got him stirred up. He's called you by name, Right? The whole city's up in arms. They've grabbed two of your buddies. They're screaming like wild men, and they're all gathered in the theater. And you want to walk in there and try to explain? Th- come, come on. All it's going to take is one person to point you out, and then it's going to get ugly. So the disciples hold him back, verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs. So these are, these are high political officials who would have been tied to Rome, but in Asia, so kind of 
out on post. They were working. And Luke tells us, look at this, interesting. Who were friends of his? Friends of Paul. Paul's got friends all over the place. And we're urging him not to venture into the theater. Paul, not a good idea, right? Let's, let's hold off. So confusion is ruling the day, which is not uncommon with events like this. And as we continue to read, verse 32, now some cried out one thing, probably Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, or some version of that. Some another, maybe they're yelling about the way and how Paul is ruining everything. And some did not know why they had come together. They just got caught up in it like, this looks fun. Let's go. I'll, yeah, what do you want me to yell? Sure, I can yell that. No problem. Let's, uh, let's, get, let's get going. So the, the confusion is, is rampant. Verse 33 tells us, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why this is here. This, to me, this is, is just another picture or, or example of the confusion. You got all these people screaming and the Jews are going, hey, wait a minute, we need Alexander to get up here and say a few words. Why? I don't know. A lot of commentaries think that Alexander was going to try to separate himself and the Jews from these Christians, these folks following the way. Maybe that's the case. That's an argument from silence because Luke doesn't tell us. But we do know the crowd puts Alexander in front of the, up in front of the crowd. He's motioning with his hands, trying to get everybody quiet down, quiet down, quiet down. Immediately, they notice he is a Jew, right? Wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized he was a Jew, for two hours they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Alexander's mission failed. Whatever he was trying to do, he didn't, according to Luke, even get a word out that anyone heard. One commentator talking about this, I thought this was really interesting. One commentator regards this scene by saying, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is to shout itself hoarse. That's all they got. I can make you listen to me for two hours, but I can't change your heart. I can make you stay here in this theater as I grab two of your buddies. That's all I can do with them. Only thing they can do against Paul is shout itself hoarse. So, so let's step back a second and see, see what's happening. So we've got Demetrius who starts with the tradesman and explaining, hey, look, this is going to hurt my pocketbook. And, oh, yeah, it's going to hurt the goddess and the city. And, you know, I'm a good, solid citizen. So he makes it a little more noble than just my wealth is at stake. But that's the, that's the basis for all of this. He gets the other tradesmen who will build these idols and shrines and trinkets and whatever else that you can buy and take home and sit on your mantle for Artemis. He gets them all worked up. It spreads much larger crowd on the verge of a riot, moves itself into the theater, grabbing two of Paul's companions, 
as they go. And ends with one of the Jews trying to quiet them down only to be shouted down. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Enter the town clerk. Again, this is an interesting passage. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd. Alexander, I don't know how good he was at this or how long he tried, but apparently he gets shut down. They yell for two hours. The town clerk stands up and the hush falls over the crowd. That's quite a clerk. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there? who does not know that the city of the Ephesians Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. So after two hours, this guy shows up, and you don't think town clerk like we would think about it. I'll tell you, this is probably more than half of you won't understand this reference, but immediately what comes to my mind when I read town clerk is Howard Sprague, on the Andy Griffith show. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This, this, this is who I see standing up in front of this crowd of people screaming is Howard Sprague. And I think, sit down, Howard. You're going to get decimated. But that's not who this is. This, this clerk is likely quite high ranking um, in terms of his status. He's likely a liaison between this Asian provenance of Rome and the Roman government. So there's there's probably an opportunity here for this clerk to have as much leash as Rome will allow as long as he keeps things under control. We'll we'll see a little bit more hinting about that as as we go along. But this town clerk shows up, maybe because of his status and his ability and his official capacity... Everybody recognizes him and goes, oh, everybody be quiet. Howard's about to talk, and we better pay attention or we're going to get in trouble. Maybe that's why they quieted down. We're not told. But the town clerk, seeing the craziness and what all is going on, wants to keep things settled and quiet and out of Roman view. Last thing he needs is the Romans coming to make an investigation of a riot. So he tells them, look, verse 35, Everybody knows that the temple is in Ephesus. Everybody knows how great it is. Everybody knows that it's ours, and it's our pride and joy. The way, don't worry about them. It's flash in the pan. Paul's coming through. Don't worry about it. Everybody knows the great god, goddess Artemis and the stone that fell from the sky, and that, that was likely some kind of meteor or something that fell from the sky, and they thought, hey, the God has sent us this. Let's stick it in the temple. But don't worry, the way poses no threat. There's no danger of Artemis being deposed or losing her magnificence, as Demetrius said. And again, as we've already mentioned, we know how that works out. But he carries on, continues. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Calm down. Everybody knows how great we are. Just settle down. And then what does he say? For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. They haven't stolen anything. They haven't desecrated our temple. You've brought them in here for no good reason. And that's going to not work out well for us. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So he told them, look, you're, you're getting very close to getting Rome's attention, and we don't want Rome's attention. We don't need them down here. We don't need any sanctions put on us. We don't need any investigation. We don't need anybody snooping around. We've got a good thing going. Keep your mouth shut. Go home and let those two guys go because they had not done anything wrong that we can charge them with. And that's how it ends. And you'll see next week as you begin in chapter 20, it does end right there. Verse 1 of chapter 20, after the uproar ceased. So Howard Sprague stands up and everybody shuts up, lets the guys go, and they go home. Seemingly listening to reason, which is how Paul has been teaching. Best everybody go on home. So they do. Assembly is dismissed. So what do we do with a story like this? What do we do with a passage of Scripture? This is a fantastic example of why we study Scripture verse by verse, passage by passage, working through whole books of the Bible. Because as we talked about at the beginning, if you try to drop in, parachute into a passage of Scripture and pick something out of it, if you drop in on Acts 19, verse 21, and then read to the end of the chapter with having no clue of the context, you go, what in the world is this talking about? Makes no sense. So what do we do? It's a narrative. It's a historical account of actual events from actual people who actually lived and walked and died in service to Christ. But what do we pick from this? I've heard Isaac say before, this passage is not a go thou and do likewise passage, right? Unless it's don't riot or the authorities will get on you. So what do we do? What do we learn? Well, there's plenty to learn. We've pointed out some of it already. But as we read the account of Luke wrapping, or Luke's wrapping up of the account of this riot, we see Again, we're faced with the changing power and authority of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Again, as we, as we look back over the passages that got us to this point in Acts, the gospel impact is clear. We saw in Thessalonica, Paul preached. People were converted. We saw in Berea. We saw in Athens with the Areopagus exchange. So in Corinth, we saw in Antioch, now in Ephesus. We mentioned at the beginning, Paul's method for ministry is largely unchanged. He shows up, typically finds the synagogue, begins teaching there. Some believe, some don't, usually gets run out. Ultimately, that ministry methodology will cost him his life as he dies in service to the king. But Paul continues to show up and present reasoned, well-thought-out messages in synagogues and lecture halls, any place that the Lord sends him to add to his kingdom as people repent, believe, and are saved. 
So we've re- referenced Athens a couple of times. One message that's recorded in Acts is Paul telling a group of those Greeks that says, look, you don't have to wonder about the unknown God. God has revealed himself. We read throughout the Old Testament of God continually revealing himself to his people, revealing his standard to his people. That's another thing that, that we could spend a lot of time comparing and contrasting here. You can do it through the Old Testament and the different gods and goddesses that are found there. You can do it right here. The people that we run into in Scripture who are chasing after this multitude of deities are all doing so in an effort to make them like them. I want to please you. I don't know how to please you, and you don't know how to please them because they're just a piece of rock. That's all it is. Or a hunk of silver, or a piece of pottery if you're of lower means. But you think, okay, the God didn't allow my corn crop to come in this year. He must not be pleased with me. Let me do something different. And the law of the Old Testament gets a bad rap because we on the New Covenant side of things think, oh, the law is just a list of rules, regulations. We're beyond all that. We live under grace. When we miss the idea that God revealing himself, God revealing his standard, God revealing what it takes to live up to that standard is a gigantic measure of grace. Because that is the first step in us understanding wait a minute, God can be known, but I can't get there. There is a list of things that God requires of me, and the moment I'm old enough to make a decision for myself, I mess it up. I'm born in sin, and as quick as I'm old enough to do it, I choose to sin, willingly. So God reveals himself through the Old Testament and gives us, these are the standards. This is the perfect life. This is how you are holy. It doesn't take long for people to figure out, I can't do that, God. He says, I know you can't. Thought of that too. Got a plan before the foundation of the world. I will send my son. Paul tells us in Galatians, in the fullness of time comes, God sent Christ to live the life to fulfill all the law, to fulfill all the prophecies, to do all the things we cannot do, to be appointed to die on a Roman cross, not too much longer, or not too far in the past from the passage we read today. But because of his perfection, the death that he suffered at the hands of the Roman soldiers on that cross, in your place and mine, had no claim on him. The third day he rose. And we are offered the greatest opportunity of trade in cosmic history. His righteousness for our sin. That's still the truth. That's still what's offered. That's still what's taught. That's what Paul believed. That's what Paul taught. And again, like last week, we think, I don't have magic books that I need to burn. So this week you may think, I don't worship Artemis. I don't have little shrines on my mantelpiece that I'm going home to 
bow down in front of and say, please allow me to have a good week at work this week or please make my business do well or whatever. And you think, I don't, I don't do that. I don't live that way. I don't have those hang-ups. One last place to turn and we'll pray and be done. Colossians chapter 3. And I would ask, I, w- I want you to read this with me. I don't want you, don't take my word for it. I want you to sit it at your lap and look at it. Colossians chapter 3. This is Paul talking, writing to another church where he ministered. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, or greed, which is what? What's that word? Idolatry. We don't make our idols from silver and gold and wood and whatever anymore. We make it out of thoughts and ideas and desires. Paul is clear here. Anything that takes the place of God as first and foremost in our affections, our worship, Anything that takes that place is an idol. John Calvin said, we are idol factories. We can make them out of anything. And it cranks out 24-7. So don't get caught up and think, I don't have any of that stuff in my house. No magic books, no idol on the shelf. None of that. I'm good to go. Think again. Read that passage in Colossians. Understand anything, anything, anything that takes preeminence of Christ and that priority out of your life is an idol. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, your word is true. We are thankful to you for revealing yourself to us, to showing us the truth of the gospel, to showing us what you have done, what you have finished through the work and ministry, life, death, and resurrection of your son. Father, now as we close this service and as we have read this passage and we have thought through present-day idols, Lord, I pray now that you would begin working. Hearts and minds, Lord, would be changed, would be drawn to you, that affections would be turned to you. That, Lord, you would convict us, that you would show us things that we can change, behaviors we can alter, not to gain your favor, we have that. Not to gain your forgiveness, we can't earn that. Lord, but to live a life of obedience to you. Lord, as your children, that should be our desire. That's what we ask that you would do for us today. Lord, give us the faith. Give us the discipline. Help us to move forward with our minds trained and our hearts humble in an effort to please you because you are worthy. Lord, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel and the free gift of salvation that is so clearly presented there. 
Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen.